From Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Thomas Gaffey is the Senior VP of Technology and Innovation at Building 21, a nonprofit organization that is reimagining secondary schooling to meet the needs of all learners. They're champions of competency-based assessment, and we at Sora have actually even consulted with them as we were defining our own assessment model. They truly are trailblazers. Prior to his current work, Thomas studied computer engineering and spent time in the classroom as a math teacher. Thomas was nicknamed Mr. Pedagogy by his former colleagues since he always stressed the importance of leading with pedagogy when making decisions. Thomas, thank you so much for being on the show today. Happy to be here. Let's start off by talking a little bit about you. I know you don't I know you don't like talking about yourself, but just tell us what in broad strokes, what's your story? Why did you get into education and why do you think this is an important problem worth solving? Yeah, sure. Um, education is actually my second career. I um, My background is in computer engineering, and I did not really enjoy, when I was really early, uh, early on in my career, I just didn't enjoy the fact that I would be working for some big corporation where... Um, you know, my my intellectual property, my thoughts, everything that I was done was done for a company to make a profit. It just didn't appeal to me. Um, but I love I mean, that's the type of my that's the type of brain I have. Uh, I mean, I'm an engineering thinker as a default kind of thinking process. Um, but I've always had this history of Ed, being an educator in just in different ways. My senior project in high school was to set up a tutoring lab in my high school to help uh, underclassmen. And I was sort of one of the main tutors. Um, and then throughout college, I did t- lots of tutoring sessions. I was an RA in a, in a dorm. So I just had all of these opportunities to be a type of educator. Um, and so I, I just had that, that love of the process. And so when I, um, finished, when I, when I considered to go into graduate school, um, I wanted to take, I wanted to become an educator and I decided to be a math educator. Um, not necessarily because of my background, just because I thought that it, there was a, there was a need for, you know, math teachers that, that, um, thought differently about how to teach. Uh, so that's kind of how I landed in education. Um, and I remember really early on, um, before I even became a teacher, I, I, I had this goal. I had a 10 year plan and my, and within 10 years of being a teacher, I wanted to leave the classroom and open a school. Um, so that was the goal from the get go. And um, then I was a math teacher for seven years. Um, I taught mostly freshmen in high school in a school in West Philadelphia. Um, and along that time, I got to use my skills in computer engineering. I was the director of technology. So I kind of uh, merged those two worlds together and did a lot of uh, professional development. I did a lot of consulting for other schools, how to integrate technology into the classroom to, uh, to aid project-based learning. Um, and I actually, uh, along the way, um, which we've talked about before, which is uh, my, I, I developed kind of a nickname called Mr. Pedagogy because even when I was doing all of this you know, tech-heavy consulting, um, I, I always talk to my colleagues about making sure that pedagogy came first and in, in, in particular project-based learning, uh, we should not be training technology tool. No, you know, we shouldn't be training teachers on how to use technology tools without first training teachers about good pedagogy. Um, and so that's just, that's sort of, I had these two different kinds of mindsets that, that kind of merged together to create kind of where I am. And then. I had this opportunity seven years into my teaching um, to take those two skills or those two mindsets really and fulfill my 10-year goal within seven years. And so I joined Building 21 in 2013 because they were designing and opening uh, a new innovative high school 
in Philadelphia. Um, so, you know, every August I get my Facebook memory that comes up that says in 10 years, I'm going to have my own school. And it's really cool, uh, to do that because now I have, you know, two schools that, that I, that I helped start up and then all of these other schools across the country that we support. So before we jump into building 21 and the schools you've worked with, I'm curious, what was the thing that when you were starting to teach, you identified as being important enough that you cared enough about that you wanted to start your own school? And I asked because like when I and my co-founders were starting Sora, we had reasons that in some many cases we couldn't even articulate why we cared so much about them. But we deeply felt that it was a structural problem that required a new type of school. So anyway, that's me yeah. asking you, what were those things you cared no, about? No, that's a really important question if you under understand my why. Um, so in high school, when I went, I did, I did eight years of Catholic school. Um, and so I did, there was no middle school when you, when you go, you know, kind of small town Catholic school. So I didn't, I never had that experience. And then I went right from Catholic grade school into a public high school. And what was interesting about my experience in grade school, you know, and it was a time where, you know, there, there wasn't, there was just, it was just starting where people were, um, maybe misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed with things like uh, ADHD or ADD. And, and I remember the lots of conversations in grade school about my behavior, my mentality, my development. And it was always like, you know, should an IEPs weren't as sort of a, you know, just a important thing. They, that's when they were just starting actually um, in kind of the early to mid nineties. And so there was all these questions. Am I developmentally stunted? Am I, do I, you know, have ADHD? Should I go on Ritalin and, and all of that. And so my parents resisted all of it and they said, he's fine. He's normal. And, um, which is interesting because I probably wasn't quite normal, but I got to high school and because of my background and testing or whatever, they put me in a, um, a track. So my high school is heavily tracked. There were three tracks, scientific college prep and tech prep. And they put me in tech prep because of whatever they identified in my background And tech prep was essentially for students that would leave high school and go right into the workforce. And, um, and that's interesting because you don't actually have access to the honors courses. You don't have access to all of these things. And so for two years, I was around people that were very hands-on and very, you know, industrious, very um, – but they weren't necessarily uh, the intellectual part of the crowd. And so I took things like wood shop, metal shop, um, you know, engineering was in this curriculum and I loved it. I loved every aspect of it. And to this day, like I'm an amateur carpenter and uh, metal worker and roboticist, all that was from those experiences. But in my junior year, like they realized that I, I literally in my geometry class, in my 10th grade geometry class, I literally got a 100% on every single geometry test. Like it was, I had a perfect year and they realized after that. And so my geometry teacher actually advocated for me. She's like, she, he should be in the scientific courses. Like, look at this, you know, look at these test scores. And so they put me in, went from tech prep to scientific. Now this is a long story long, which is now I took these two years, I took a couple AP courses, although I hated AP courses, um, but I took, um, all the high-level maths, all the high-level sciences. I never took a study hall. Like I packed my schedule full of as much as I could. But when I – and so I was in the classes now with the top 10 ranked. Ranked is a really important word. Um, I was – and I was getting in math – especially in math and science, I was getting better grades than almost all of them. I would constantly the, – the valedictorian was a very good friend of mine and we would always compete in calculus. Um, and then I got in my senior year – I finished with a ranking of 30 out of 150, even though I was outperforming students in the top 10, in many cases, the first, the top three in many of these, these courses, but I was ranked 30. And I remember feeling terrible about that. And then of course I quickly forgot about it until I started getting interested in education and realized 
that the way we track, the way we rank, and even the way we grade students and give them feedback about how they're doing over time is absolutely ridiculous. And I just can't believe we do that to other people. I can't believe we don't question it. I can't believe there isn't this this strong desire to change it um, because I was very successful academically and it hurt me. I can't imagine what ranked 31 to 150 would think. Like, what if you were 150 out of 150? What would that do to you? You know, it just, so I, one of my big whys um, when I got into education was I'm not going to do that to my kids. I'm going to grade differently. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that there was a school where everybody did that differently. And so that's why that's where this goal of like, I want, I want to spend 10 years of trying to figure out how to do it differently. And then I want to do it differently in a school. Um, so that's sort of the origin story of, of my big why and my sort of passion against traditional grading. That's wonderful. Now, I think that's a great segue into your work at Building 21. So can you tell the audience, what is Building 21? What does the organization stand for? And then what is your role inside of the organization? Yeah, so Building 21 is a nonprofit and we, uh, we partner with schools and districts to help them reimagine school. Um, and that can look very differently um, depending on the schools or districts we work with. We work mostly with uh, uh, traditional public district schools or traditional public districts, um, but we have folks like yourself that don't fall into those categories. Um, and uh, we are uh, we started uh, in 2013 designing a school specifically for the Philadelphia School District, also called Building 21 Philadelphia. Um, and so that opened in t- fall of 2014. And then in fall of 2015, we opened our second school in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, again, another public district school. And, and to this day, those are our only two schools that we opened and we continue to operate. Um, and then from there, we uh, created basically a set of consulting services where we would partner with schools and districts from around the country to help them solve specific problems or start to start their transformation process specifically to, to, to being more competency-based. Um, but our school model is bigger than competency-based. It's really important. We're not a competency-based organization. We're an organization that created a school model based on um, a model that develops strong relationships with students, a model that uh, makes making sure that we have culturally relevant pedagogy, making sure that we're trauma-informed, that we are creating um, kind of authentic and relevant experiences for students, both in school and outside of the four walls of school, that we partner with um, community and industry partners to make sure that we're helping students have different uh, experiences, working with different people, different places, uh, different kinds of work, different kinds of thinking. Um, And then along the way, we realized that if we want to track that learning in an authentic way, we can't do it with traditional grades, traditional courses, and traditional credits. And so the at the time, competency-based education was starting to gain a little steam. And some of the principles of competency-based education would help us solve those design challenges that we had at the time. And so we actually did a lot of learning ourselves at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of this. And 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 many people uh, if I go back a little bit, many people like Building 21, what does that even stand for? So I guess to answer that quickly, so our two co-founders met at uh, the Harvard Ed Leadership Program, and they, um, they, along with another student, started to design the beginnings of what the organization it would be, and they uh, visited Building 20 at MIT which um, in the mid uh, 20th century was kind of this weird place. It was sort of this dilapidated old industrial building, but um, that had, and it wasn't built for what it became, which is sort of the center of really interesting innovation. Like there was Bell Labs, there was Noam Chomsky, like working down the hall from each other. And so they were sort of crossing paths constantly with people that were in different domains and they were sharing knowledge um, and a lot of really cool stuff came out of that. And so I think they said like, what if we could take 
you know, create building 20 for, for school, for education. And so that's where, you know, building 21 came in. And there's a lot of play on things like building 21, 21st century, building 21, the iteration on building 20 or building 21, the 21st century, you know, raised by a village, you know, that was an original concept. Um, so that's kind of the origin story of our name. I love it. I love it. You, you mentioned something that I think is hilarious and relevant to Sora as well, which is people grab onto one facet of our program, such as the competency-based or the project-based yeah. learning, and they go, oh, you're a project-based learning school. What's that look like? And it's like, no, to understand our approach to education and our school model and thus our pedagogy, you really have to understand all these things together. But that is a tall order for someone going from a traditional paradigm where they go, oh, what's it like to run a class like Algebra 1? Give me an example of Algebra 1 project. And I go, no, we believe in integrated curriculum, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we believe in. Yep. And so it's just such a paradigm shift. And it's hard for traditional people to wrap their their minds around uh, a school like, like ours. Um, but that said, I'll commit the mortal sin and ask you, let's focus just on competency-based education for a second. Um, could you explain to the audience what is competency-based education? Well, it's interesting to go back to, to that struggle that you were just talking about. Um, you know, when, when you, like a school, like I always think about it in terms of a school model. A school model defines like the, first of all, why does the school exist? What the purpose of the school is, what the purpose of, uh, of the work being done is and, and sort of how it's organized. And so we, we created a long time ago, um, what are called the four building blocks of competency-based education, but they're not, it's really not about competency-based education. That was more for like marketing. These four building blocks to us are four building blocks to any really good, successful, progressive school. Um, and the first building blocks uh, is um, is about is is relationships as the foundation. That's one way to talk about it, which is within a school, the relationships that students are building with teachers, that students are building with other students, and that teachers are building with other teachers is paramount. It's not just that you say it's important; it's that you have frameworks and structures in place where that work can happen and be reflected upon as it's happening. And a common way of doing that is an advisory model, you know, an advisory structure or a mentor model um, where you have an adult with 20 students for four years. That's one example of it. Um, so it's that's very thoughtful and intentional effort to foster strong relationships in the building. Uh, the second building block is performance-based assessment. And this one was a really difficult one to distill, but essentially it's how do you make work that is authentic and relevant and based on application. And um, so it's a, it's a seed to project-based learning, for example. But we find that with a lot of people, project-based learning isn't the building block of really good progressive school. It's, it's because you can do projects all the time, fun projects, but what are you actually learning? Well, the learning is through the process of understanding how to design performance-based tasks and assessments. Um, where you are saying, this is what you're going to learn. This is what we're going to do to teach you that. And then we're going to assess it. And then the container of it might be within a project-based unit. Um, so that's the, the the second building block. And then the third building block um, is about adult development. And so one thing that is really important about our model is that um, we don't say like students first or students only. That's just not our culture. Our culture is... Um, the, learn, the, the learning and growth of adults is just as important as the learning and growth of students. And so there's a, a, a very um, dedicated yes. effort to getting adults to develop themselves as they're trying to do the work with students. Because we just believe that if you're trying to get students to do this work in advisory and you're trying to get them to do the work in your performance-based classrooms, teachers – also have to do that work. And so you should treat the learning in, in a similar way. And the fourth building block is uh, kind of a, it, it's a little bit of a catch-all, um, but it's it's sort of falls under systems and structures. And um, the, the best way to understand it is by giving examples. For example, you can't do a seven period traditional schedule if you're going to do advisory with integrated project-based learning and you, you just, you can't do it. So you need a different approach to schedule. And so when you, 
want to change your schedule and do something more innovative, you might have to hire differently. You might have to think about staffing differently and how people's time are used. You don't just have, you know, four administrators and, and 30 teachers. You might have a teacher that is a pseudo administrator. You might have paraprofessionals come in. You might have student teacher, like you think about that differently. Um, and then uh, very much related to that is when you're doing that in this schedule and you're doing this different type of learning, this different type of assessment, you really can't get around different ways of tracking and communicating that. And so this is sort of the, the platforms uh, approach to it. And so you have to think, you can't just take a traditional platform and say, we're going to do this different way of assessment, this different way of learning with this different schedule. It doesn't work like that. Um, so you, you you have to have this flexibility uh, about your thinking about human capital and scheduling and time. And you have to seek flexibility in the different systems and platforms um, that you try to source. I love that. Let's focus in really quickly on what is the difference between competency-based education and mastery-based education. We were we were joking. We saw each other. We saw each other at the ASU GSB conference and at this very well-known, well-respected conference. The speakers there, I think we're still conflating the two, but they're not really the same. So we have a lot of work to do in, in the industry for re-education. So let's start. Let's yeah. start now. Let's start re-educating. So if we go back to the four building blocks real quick. So you're trying to do all of these four things, right? What competency-based education is... Um, at its highest level, it is a replacement of time-based, age-based, course-based, and grade-based structures so that you can do those four building blocks. Whereas what we have now is in the traditional model, which is very time-based, which is very age-based, which there are traditional grades, um, people are trying to do these innovative, progressive things despite the system and structures that kind of encapsulate it. And what CBE tries to do is, what are the systems and structures that you can replace so that those building blocks can happen uh, because of them, not despite them? And um, and so when I say time-based structures, the best way to understand competency-based is to, is to compare it to traditional models. So time-based, you know, when you in in almost every other every school that exists, you get a you get um, you get scheduled to a course for a year, and then upon the time completion, you know, butts in a seat, you get a credit evaluated almost regardless of whether or not you've learned anything, right? Because you can get a D right. and write that's credit and your graduation progress bar fills up. Um, and so that's a time-based system. And then in a competency-based system, you are taking that away. Like at its purest, you are taking away that those time-based credits, those that, that coupling to the course, the courses that you get scheduled to, and you're saying, okay, we're going to have experiences. And in those experiences, whatever they are, whether they're traditional courses or integrated project-based experience, doesn't matter. Internships, independent studies, capstone project, it doesn't matter. They're just experiences. In those experiences, you are learning stuff and you are demonstrating that learning. And so you organize what you need to learn in what are called competencies, sort of statements of skills that you learn in order to be ready. And you could describe readiness as work ready, college and career ready, lifelong learner ready. It doesn't matter. It's just how do you define readiness? And I think, and we use college and career ready. And so you're replacing, you're no longer evaluating, you know, bits of progress by time-based courses that you get scheduled to in your schedule, you are demonstrating over time competencies and experiences. And as you demonstrate, as you grow in those competencies, those are your credits. And so time no longer matters. It's, it's really all about how you grow over time in these competencies that are being evaluated over and over and over again. And then the other aspect of that is, you know, in a traditional model, when you are given an opportunity to demonstrate your learning, it's typically called a, an assignment. 
And that assignment, usually at best, that assignment has a rubric. At worst, it's just kind of a series of points. And so what happens is, even if it's a rubric that sort of explicitly tells you what you need to do to demonstrate um, learning or proficiency or choose your word, it all kind of goes into a funnel and gets averaged together. It converted into a point, so those points get added up, and you know it gets converted on this scale, and then it gets obfuscated because all of that learning of all of these assignments just gets lumped together in a, a single grade, and that grade is what determines your your time based credit. In a competency based model, like you're not you're replacing that, and you're replacing it with. So I instead of giving an assignment, you're designing a task so that you can assess a competency like writing argumentative essay or collaboration or some other competency. And then you are now assessing each one of those individually. And you're not combining them together. You're assessing it individually that data goes into a platform or a system and you're tracking that growth of those individual competencies over time. So you're just, you no longer have to do that kind of aggregation and obfuscation obfuscation of, uh, of all of these assignments together. You're, the assignments aren't the thing anymore. It's the competencies that the assignments are designed to assess. You're tracking the competencies. You don't necessarily care about the assignments anymore in terms of evaluating learning. And so that's you know, the gist of competency-based education, you know, and, and, and I'm really particular about how we define it in the field. And so one of my criticisms of the field of competency-based education is there still doesn't seem to be a definition of what it means to have the two words that are hyphenated of competency and based, right? So like, that should mean something like, you know, there's when you're in project based learning, there's always this kind of like the little pithy statement, like you can do project based learning or you can do projects. Doing projects is not project based learning. And that's a really important distinction that you make as you're learning how to do project based learning. I feel like that same thing should happen for competency based education, because if you're still if you have competencies that you're tracking in a course and that course still lasts for 180 days. And after 180 days, you're still getting a credit and a traditional grade because you're averaging together all those competencies. That's good as it because you're giving feedback for students on each of those competencies. You're seeing their growth over time over that 180-day period. But it's still tradition, like it's still time-based. Right? You can either be time-based or you can be competency-based. I just don't know how you can say you're competency-based if you still have that structure. And the other piece that you lose there, and this is another really important feature of competency-based, is that that competency of argumentative essay needs to happen in more than just your, your four English classes in high school. And collaboration needs to happen in more than just, you know, the some elective or something. And the idea is, is that because you're tracking these things separately and you're not, you don't care about the experience that it happened and you don't care about um, the tasks that it happened in, you're aggregating all of this progress and growth for collaboration from all of these experiences, from all of these teachers. And I think there's a really nice metaphor or concept, if you will, that helps people understand this. In a traditional model, you have a teacher is assigned a course and 30 students and they're given a grade book. And at the end of that experience, at the end of that course, that grade book needs to have final grades for all of the students. And it goes into a system and students make progress, um, graduation progress. In a competency-based world, it's almost as if every student has their own grade book. And that grade book is, in, for, in, in terms of high school, that grade book is their graduation requirements, their competency-based graduation requirements. And they go around the day, you know, they walk around from experience to experience, teacher to teacher, and each person that is evaluating competencies puts their data in the student's grade book. And so students are filling up their competency-based grade book over time. And that grade book is owned by them, not by a teacher in a course that has a time-based. And then, so that's competency-based. It is 
structural level, system level replacement. And you can have competencies within traditional courses, but you're, you're still not part of a competency-based system. However, and this is probably a long way to get to your answer, but I think it's really important, which is you also have this concept called mastery-based or mastery. And they are different, and a lot of people use them interchangeably. Proficiency-based, mastery-based, competency-based. People still use them interchangeably. And for mastery, so if let's take a look at um, uh, like a continuum for moving from traditional grading to something not traditional grading. So the generally the first step if you want to move away from traditional grading is do standards-based grading. And so that's the first step. That's like step one on your pathway to becoming competency-based. So you break up your assignments. You sort of evaluate what standards go where. And you are just evaluating standards and grading standards um, and not assignments. So that's still not competency-based and it's still not mastery. Neither one of those. Mastery is the next step of that process where I now standards-based grading. I have these statements that I'm evaluating across all of these assignments in my class. Now, the next step is I want every student to leave my class at, let's say, a three or higher based on a four-point rubric. That's typically um, how uh, standards are evaluated. And so now you're saying the goal of my class is to get everyone to mastery. And if you want credit for this class as a student, you need to get to mastery. And now that opens up a whole world of opportunity for changing pedagogy because now a teacher has to think, I need to know where all of my students are for every competency so that I can do flexible grouping strategies um, in my classroom and, and do the diff- – and it's basically a way – to have systems and data support differentiation, which is actually a pretty tough thing for teachers to do in a traditional world because they don't have the data that allows them to group differently and to create differentiated assignments. And so that's what mastery, to me, that's how I understand mastery. It's it's an evolution away from the traditional model where you're saying, I am evaluating these statements, skills, standards, targets, whatever you want to call them, and I want to make sure that all of my students get the mastery. And credit happens when you reach mastery for all of the things identified. But that's still not competency-based because you can do that in a traditional course-based structure. right? Competency-based is the next step forward, which is, okay, we have one teacher that's doing mastery and standards-based grading. Now, how do we make all teachers do it? How do we change our graduation requirements? How do we change our student information systems to track competencies instead of traditional time-based credits? That's, to me, what competency-based is. And I think there's a really interesting... So Aurora has their 16 principles of of competency-based education. One of those principles, one of 16, is mastery. There are 15 other things that you need to work on in order to be what they define as the 16 principles of being competency-based. And I think that's right. I think competency-based is a wholehearted replacement of the traditionally the traditional factory model of school. I, that's a wonderful way to summarize. It is a whole philosophy on how schools should operate, look and operate. And that gets completely lost in translation even I, I may have told you this story already but I toured a progressive quote unquote school recently and they claim to be doing competency based education I'm like okay there aren't that many of these in the wild I'm gonna go check it out <laughs> and when I get there the principal when I asked okay what's the competency based piece of this the answer was students can't move on to the next grade until they've proven to be competent I'm like okay that's great in what? Competent in their classes. So literally what it boiled down to was the same school day structure. It's just they wouldn't let you move on to Algebra 2 until you were competent in Algebra 1. It's just such a bastardization yeah. oh, <laughs> of everything and, and, we're talking and that's, about. I mean, so that's a really good example of when you say people, like when you say, oh, 
you know, get rid of courses. People are like, well, what do you do instead? Or get rid of traditional grading. Well, what do you do instead? Like that's kind of like the uh, a very oversimplified version of the conversation. But if that's all people know and you say, get rid of all of it, they go to, oh, well, that's unschooling or that's, you know, there's no structure and students can, and it's like, no, it's just, you can't yet imagine or see a different way of tracking progress to mastery or readiness or graduation, doesn't matter what. And I think this is a really important distinction we make, and it's a really important important solution that we have for our particular flavor of CBE. Um, because, so, you know, when we got into this, it seemed like, every, it seemed like the definition of CBE was that you would define standards that you would use across courses. And you would create these four-point rubrics for all the standards for all the grade levels. And it was almost like, what if you did standards-based grading everywhere? And that seems to be what CBE is. And the like the inevitable solution of that is if you're still course-based, you can get stuck in a level with this list of standards. And you can't move on until, and so that's that's you know the one the the one sixteenth principle, which is you would only advance upon mastery. And so if you take that traditional course based organization, and you don't complete that list, you're stuck there. You're just so. What do you do? Like oh, you you know you offer intervention strategies. Like sure, sure, but like you you haven't really changed school. And I think what we tried to do was. Instead of organizing our standards by grade level, or if you want to get rid of grade levels, just level, like anytime you organize by level and you prevent someone from moving from one level to the next, from one list of things to master to the next list of things to master, you're still locking them into something that, I don't know, in some way, like it prohibits the student from seeing that progress and it almost prohibits the the school or the system from kind of coming up with a better way of tracking that. And so in, in our model, we don't, we don't use those four point rubrics like the, they don't exist because, you know, when you put those four point rubrics into levels, now you have to like master each, each, each one of those, those lists. And so what we have is, and we did something pretty controversial, which is, okay, there are a list of competencies that we we've come to realize through our research, through our experiences that are required for being ready for being post-secondary ready, college career ready, whatever that is. That's what we should be doing every single year, starting in kindergarten period. So the, the list never changes. The student's grade book, if we go back to the earlier metaphor, the student's grade book never changes. And when you work on collaboration in sixth grade, you're still working on it in 12th grade. If you're working on um, professionalism, when you're nine years old, you're working on professionalism when you're 18 years old, period. And that's unique. And so because we keep our list of things that we track the same, and we call them competencies and skills, we created a progression that becomes our rubric. So progressions are really popular in this field. And usually you create a progression and then you create your four point rubrics based on the progression. In our world, the progression is the rubric. You get one rubric for collaboration that's used regardless of experience, teacher, age, person, student, doesn't matter what. There's one collaboration rubric. And the idea is that a school would create an instructional model. Could be traditional courses, could be very non-traditional courses, could be no courses, I don't know, it doesn't matter. That is decoupled from how you track progress. And so if you're working on argumentative essay, that's one of the competencies, and you could be doing that in all these different experiences and you're given ratings on that progression. You know, it's a six, it's a six point progression. Um, sixth level progression and you're getting ratings on it 
And those ratings, you're, you might grow, you know, you might grow and sort of increase. You might regress a little bit. And the idea is that over a long period of time, because the rubric never changes, you will get to the fifth level of that six-point rubric, which is college and career ready. And that's why in our models, you can have a course called English One. And you can put students in that course. And you could even, if you wanted to say, these are, you know, all of my 15-year-olds are going into this English One course. But you might have one student working on some kind of argumentative writing task, sitting uh, next to another student that's working on the same exact task, the same task, but one might be trying to get to that fifth or sixth level of the rubric, one might still be on the second or third level of the rubric because their skills, their competencies haven't, they just haven't grown that much yet. And so you can start to think about how to organize experiences in a way that makes sense where you're not, and the experiences are time-based. Of course they're time-based. Like time is important. Like you have this work, this unit, this studio, this course, whatever, this internship, it all happens for a period of time. But the amount that you can progress along that progression within a competency is really up to you, up to your learning. And if you complete all of your requirements that are set, you get to a highest level, you do it enough times and build the stamina, you're ready to graduate. And it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter where you are. To really draw the line for our audience, this enables some incredible things a lot of incredible things, but namely having classes that are not structured around age, but structured around interest or context, right? This is how at Sora, when people ask, how can you have freshmen and seniors in the same class? You have 14 year olds and 18 year olds in the same quote unquote class. Yes, for this exact reason, every student has a different, uh, I guess you'd call it condition of success. Like what success looks like to them is very different because where they're at in their competencies is very different. So they both can be writing an argumentative essay about if objective truth is real or something like that in one of our more uh, philosophy courses, but they could, they're just held to vastly different standards. Yeah, because students are where they are. And like for for decades upon decades, we've known that students, everybody in my in my in my room, there are vastly different performance levels. And so let's let's actually create a system that values that, that responds to that, and that doesn't make it just prohibitive for schools and teachers to organize learning around that. And so you're right, like you can do that because the task isn't the thing anymore. The the course isn't the thing anymore because when they complete that course that you just talked about at Sora, it's not that course that they're getting that credit for. It's the things that the, 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 the competencies and skills that they've sort of demonstrated in. And like I said, like, or like you said, the freshman was trying to get to one level. The senior was trying to get to a much higher level based on the same course, based on the same task. And, and that's a hard, as simple as it seems for people that have been do, doing it for a couple of years, like we have, like, it's just, it's hard for someone to wrap their heads around because all people know is you, you get scheduled to something it lasts for a certain period of time. And when it ends, you either get credit or you don't. That's great. It's great. Let's talk about your learning innovation network. So you've been working with lots of schools to try to convert them to a more competency-based system. So what are some uh, main learnings you've had through this process? And I'm interested in, in this from two perspectives. One, what have been some, I guess you could say, pleasant surprises, things that you thought were easier than, than, or perhaps turned out better than you thought? And then what were some unpleasant surprises, roadblocks you didn't see coming? Yeah. So, you know, our, our Learning Innovation Network, the concept of that is quite new, although we've been building it for, for years. We just didn't have a name for it yet. Um, so it consists of two lab schools that we open and operate. We have four schools that we've partnered with for five years or more um, that have 
been doing this transformation process with us. And then we have, uh, and those are called hubs, learning innovation hubs. And then we have learning innovation sites that are currently piloting the first step of their transformation. And we have one of those. And then we, we have a, a bunch of people that are called uh, POP participants, prob- people that have went through what we call problem of practice, as in, as in SORA, to solve a very particular problem so that they can kind of go off and continue their um, innovation or transformation. Um, and so we've learned so much from everybody that we worked with. And I would say by far the hardest work has been full transformation of our public district schools because public districts have state reporting requirements and and those are tough to work around and require all kinds of conversions from being competency-based to um, uh, the traditional stuff, which we, we do all over the place. But one of the things... Um, that, that I, I don't know if pleasant surprise is the right way to put it. I would say one of the things that I'm most proud of in this work in all of our schools is you you get to a, when you get to a point and you have all of the nastiness of like converting from CBE to traditional. But what you get out of that is a lot of students and we have predominantly high schools. We do almost all of the work in high schools right now. You have a lot of students that come to high school with what um, a, a, a school that isn't in our network, but we're very friendly with workshop school in Philly. Uh, one of their co-founders says is they, they have this thing called performance apathy. They get to high school and they just, they don't do a lot of work, right? It's, like it just, with the, with the population that, that we deal with, it just seems like something that we need to overcome. And so what happens is they fall behind pretty quickly because they don't, they just don't do work. Or if they do work, they sort of find try to find shortcuts and they don't demonstrate the levels that they need to demonstrate. But we kind of reprogram them. I don't know that there's a better way to put it. We, we, we give them a different process of what school can look like. We give them a different set of tools. We teach them how to understand their data. Um, and we give them nice progress dashboards that say, this is where you are. This is where you need to get and so they're behind. They're in some cases significantly behind. And what's what I'm most proud of is we've created a model where it's not only possible, but it happens all the time where those same students catch up and graduate. And in a traditional model, at best, what would happen is they would get a bunch of Fs early on and they would tank their GPA and they would graduate with a pretty bad GPA, which limits opportunities, regardless of how much they know and can do at the end of school. Um, at worst, they could drop out. And um, and so the first one I can say is we have lots of students where we don't tank their GPAs. We have GPAs because we have to have GPAs, but we don't tank them because um, our goal is to totally eliminate the F. And there's lots of cases where we can't fully eliminate it yet, but if you fall behind and you only master, you know, eight, you know, get to a certain level on competencies um, for 50% of the competencies where a typical student would do all of it, we don't give you an F for those competencies. That, that the concept doesn't exist. Um, and the second one, dropout. I, I can, I feel it's not sort of scientific, but I feel like there, I, I could you know, several students that I just think in a traditional school would have dropped out if they didn't have the opportunity. Um, Can't put a number on that, can't say for sure because we were successful with them. But that's what we're most proud of is we we have a model where we don't penalize kids for not learning or uh, not doing what they should have been doing from the get-go and, you know, if they if they make a bunch of bad decisions early on and then they overcome those decisions and they succeed, we should not penalize them to a, a such a, a, a harsh degree as it was what the traditional model would. Um, what we're what's been the most uncomfortable part of this work is, is honestly the work with adults and um, you know and I don't even know how to succinctly put it other than. Um, one of the things that we've changed over time is we've we've started to do this transformation with schools a lot slower because the first thing that you do is you have to change the mindsets of of the adults, especially the adults that are leading this work. And 
the amount of work that's required to not only like build capacity for for people to understand this, but just believe that there's a better way. And the the best example of this is um, in 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 many of our schools. There's not, you know, the so I one an early lesson that I had when I was a first year teacher from an experienced teacher was grade everything. Because if you don't grade it, students won't do it because they think you don't value it. And I I took that, I'm like, okay, that seems, that's, you know, that's intuitive, that seems intuitive. And it didn't pan out for me. A lot of people still believe that. It just, I, it didn't work for me. Um, and, and we see that in, in, when we start to do the transformation, uh, with schools in our model, because our model, we advocate that you don't grade, you don't track, you don't put into the system formative tasks. That's what we call them. Your do nows, your exit tickets, your sort of quizzes that you do. You don't track that. You do it. You give feedback on it. You have to do that. Like you have to do it and give feedback on it so the students know how they're progressing. And so we only track in our systems performance tasks, right? That where, you, where, where they're given an opportunity to perform or, or, or apply what they've learned. And, um, and we hear this all the time from adults, which is basic, and I'm oversimplifying here, but we need to be able to give students zeros if they don't do work because that motivates them. I've been, I've been, I, I taught for a while and that never was true. Like students just don't seem to get motivated over zeros. In fact, in my experience, that significantly demotivates them and does more harm than good. And so that mindset is huge to overcome for all of our, even our schools that, that have been doing this for seven, eight years. There's I think still that's a, one of the most powerful things about competency-based education that most people don't wrap their heads around, which is we've created a new incentive system in schooling that doesn't require threats. Right. It's such a paradigm shift, right? right? And uh, people are are stuck on this, like, the only way I can motivate kids is by threatening them. That's not true. That's scientifically untrue, right? But that's the only, uh, you know, hammer we've had thus far. So everything looks like a nail. We think, oh, we got to give people zeros. We got to threaten them some way. Your kids are not going to listen to me. Yeah. I I put it when I do this when I do my little uh, intro to CBE sessions at conferences I, I say something that people gasp at which is it seems as though one of the goals of the traditional model of grading is to motivate students through the threat of punishment you better do good on this because if you don't do good you're going to zero and if you get too many zeros you're going to get an F and if you get too many Fs you're not going to get into a good college or something like that. And it seems like that goes against every single thing that we know about motivation, like everything. Right. And, and that's so counter motivation science. It's the exact opposite. Exact opposite. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. And I like what you said, where it said we're, we're competency-based educators trying to create a new incentive system, which is sort of mastery and levels. And it's almost gamifying it a little bit. And, you know, you get to the higher level and you can graduate earlier, potentially like that should be, it should all, it should be all about what are your goals and you're constantly coming back to those goals and you're constantly setting those, those sort of long-term goals and you're constantly looking at your data to say, where am I? Am I here? I need to be here. That's how much I need to grow in order to achieve that goal. That's awesome. Completely agree. You and I were laughing recently about this article you sent me, actually, that we won't name names, but the quote was essentially competency-based education is too difficult. Teachers are already overworked. It's not worth it. <laughs> right. Where do you think, say a traditional administrator, public school, I'm sure we have listeners who are in the situation go, all of this sounds great for you. <laughs> right? Like this all sounds great for Sora and Billion 21. There's no way I could do something like this in my school. What are the words you would give them to take back to their higher ups or their district to make tangible progress in this direction? Yeah, I mean, listen, the first thing that I'll say is um, our two our, our two lab schools, the schools that we open and operate are, you know, 
not well-funded schools in very underfunded districts, high poverty, high trauma school, like not schools where you typically see innovation happening. Um, so I'll say if it's, if it, you know, it, CBE is, is right, is a right vision, long-term vision for everyone, um, regardless. And, and, and so if we've been able to try to do this work in very underfunded districts, well then everybody can, it's, it's possible. Um, the second thing I'll say is, uh, you know, I, I agree with the sentiment of that quote, which is this work is extremely hard. It's extremely hard. Um, but what I can't like, there's a moral question to me, which is we are, we are doing a model we know doesn't work. We, I mean, we know like, yeah, I mean, you can say, oh, it worked for me and it worked for like, you know, my kids. Like you can say that and sure. And that's probably true. But like the data about high school graduation, the data about post-secondary matriculation, the data about even entering post-secondary qualification or certification programs, it overwhelmingly tells us that the students that do graduate are not prepared for the workforce. They're not prepared for post-secondary. Well, let's take it one step further and just say, even if it did work, we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Because education, schooling is the second most hated activity measured that humans do next to elder and death care. Is that true? <laughs> it's kids don't. Yeah, it's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and yeah. Mihai did that original study and in so, the 80s. Kids don't enjoy school. And, and so we have to do something. And so the way that we look at this is... Um, we've, we've tried to do full school transformation quite a few times and each time it is excruciating and where we've moved is, okay, we probably shouldn't do full school transformation as quickly as we have, which is sort of like we start with ninth grade and then we grow grade age here. That's sort of the model we had. So what we do is it, we help people find, we, we say, here are your building blocks and we now call them ships. Um, you know, we've moved from the term of building blocks, but here's the building blocks of CBE. What are your assets that you have? What are you currently doing that falls into one of these categories? All right, that's great. Can we build off of it? Because that's your entry point. And so there are lots of different entry points to this work and there, a lot of them are valid. And I'll give a couple of examples. One might be if you're a high school district, if a district with a high school, you might say, all right, we're going to start, we're going to create a profile of a graduate. What are the things that students need to do to be ready? And then we're going to say, here are the competencies that we want to uh, integrate into our programming and measure that align to that profile of a graduate or portrait of a graduate. And then let's actually create curriculum for them. Let's figure out how to integrate them in the classroom or let's create an 80-20 time where that 20% time they're working on these competencies. That might be one entry point. Another entry point might be, well, I think we really need to nail this relationships thing, right? Not even competencies yet. Let's just work on establishing really strong relationships. So let's create an advisory program, right? 30 minutes at the beginning of each day. We're going to give them an approach. We're going to give them a set of activities. We're going to train our teachers. We're going to do restorative practices training so they can do community building circles. We're going to do trauma-informed care where they can set up safety plans with their students, whatever it is. That's our entry point, And that's equally valid as starting with a profile of a graduate and aligning competencies. And so there are lots of those. Maybe it's, let's get better at performance-based assessment. Let's create a design template. Let's do it. Let's bring student work. Let's norm student work. Let's figure out, you know, what we're, you know, what this teacher would grade this, uh, how they would grade this and what this teacher would grade. And let's compare and talk about it. And let's do that for two years. So it's, it's really doing nothing is the problem, right? Do, do something that's aligned with this. And if you never get to competency-based education and you just, you're a progressive school that does deeper learning or project-based learning or standards-based, great, because it's still better than doing nothing and sticking with the current factory model. Well said. I'll leave it there. <laughs> One more thing is if anyone wants to follow you or your work at Building 21, how might they do that? Uh, well, um, we have, uh, we try to, 
share as many resources as we can open and free on our website. So that's building21.org. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at B21Network. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Pedagogy. Uh, and then I think, you know, when we officially release the Learning Innovation Network, we're going to have a, a totally revamped website with totally new open resources and uh, a space for to build community. And so we're excited if you uh, if you are interested in being part of our community, um, our, our new website will be uh, releasing in October and you could sign up to be a member and kind of get access to all of uh, our community resources and uh, people in our schools that are doing this work. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Thomas, so much for being on the show. It's a fun conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soar's Learning Lab. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.